Hey, Steve. So as a researcher in the mortgage industry, what's the most common question you get? Oh, wow. We get a ton of questions about interest rates, questions about the Fed, questions about long-term rates, questions about spreads, even questions of when to lock a mortgage rate. All right. So also as a researcher in the mortgage industry, you have answers to all these questions. So uh, what's going on this year? <laughs> we try, but rates is a hard one. But uh, this time it's, it's kind of easy because the direction's already changed and, and they've already moved some. And that's definitely different because for the past couple of decades, most every rate forecaster said that rates had to go up at some point, but they didn't. So now after trending downward for that long period of time, they're up and, and they're up and, and the complication of inflation together with it too. That's a lot changing all at once this year, but how does it impact multifamily? Yeah, that's something that we do look at all the time. And in some ways, it's a big shift and in other ways, a little bit less so. Could take a while. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. Today, we're going to talk about multifamily market conditions, and we're fortunate to be joined by my colleague in multifamily research, Sarah Hoffman. Sarah leads the research team that produces a wide range of research speaking to multifamily markets, including the mid-year outlook that comes out each summer. And today, she'll share with us some key findings from this year's and we're going to talk about changing macro factors and how they flow into the multifamily market. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So yeah, let's do that and start with the broader economy. I know that oftentimes we think that year to year, how much has changed and it may not be that much, but this year we're looking at a little bit bigger changes. How was it for you as you started and approached the outlook with, the, with what we're seeing right now? This has been a really interesting outlook to put together. Uh, I think we've probably kind of said that the past few years, just given the wild ride that we've been on. Um, but we have different reasons for it this year, as you've already mentioned, with rates finally moving up and inflation being on the top of everyone's minds right now. It's also time we see almost every headline in the news points to a decline in the economic arena. However, the multifamily industry continues to shine through, but it is getting harder to ignore some of those broader economic headlines that we're seeing and just the impact it's going to have to the industry overall. So maybe kind of a good place to start is where we were at the beginning of the year. At that point, while inflation was up, expectations were for it to be tempered throughout this year and come back down to in line with slightly lower rates, maybe around 2 to 3%. Uh, we all know now that that's not going to happen. Inflation's up 40-year high. We haven't seen this in decades. Uh, and that's really pushing through to the Treasury rates. As the Fed tries to combat those higher inflation rates, it's pushing the Treasury up. And we're really starting to see really volatile interest rates going up 50 to 70 basis points and then back down in the matter of weeks. It's really spinning a lot of people's heads. So at the time, at the beginning of the year, multifamily fundamentals were expected to moderate from the really high growth that we saw in 2021. With that growth coming out of the pandemic, we were expecting moderation to come through. And it was going to be a welcome sign because those high levels of growth that we saw last year, really not sustainable for a very long period of time. However, the first quarter surprised us and we saw even higher growth than expected. Uh, demand was way up. Rental rates continued to climb. We just didn't see that level of moderation come through until about now the second quarter. We still see really strong growth, but we're starting to see signs of that moderation 
pick up in the second quarter. And that being said, the strength we've seen already this year, and even with a declining outlook uh, for the rest of this year, puts the overall market for this year in still really good position. And that change from the beginning of the year to now, we're actually expecting slightly higher rent growth than we were in January for this calendar year. And again, that's just speaking to the strong demand we've seen for households and especially how a lot of them are going renter versus ownership, given those higher treasury rates we mentioned are pushing up mortgage prices so much. So often, Sarah, I think we talk about, you know, when one thing's happening in the multifamily market, something different is happening in the single family market and, and vice versa. So how is that playing out right now? That's a really good question. And a lot of times, you know, people might think that, you know, one has to do well at the expense of the other single family versus multifamily. But a lot of times they also, they actually move in tandem. So when you see one area of the housing market do well or increase in property price appreciation, it's usually a time that you see rents grow. It's brought more to overall economic health. So when the overall economy is doing well, then you expect home prices to go up and rental rates to increase. You usually have wage growth coming off of that, people able to move, make household decisions. So we've seen a little bit of that in the past year coming out of the pandemic. Home prices up very high, rental rates up really high. But now with treasury rates up much higher, we actually saw that uh, the median home price and the 30-year mortgage rate increased that monthly payment for ownership up about 67% from the first quarter of 2020 up until May of this year. Uh, And that's just an astonishing amount. If you're thinking that a monthly mortgage payment to increase 67%, if you're on the fence to maybe jump into ownership uh, at the beginning of 2020 versus now, that's a huge differential that would have to be made up in order to afford a single family home at this point. During that same time, rental rates have increased about 20% and still a substantial increase. It just kind of shows that compared to the the single family market, the increase that we've seen in rental rates is not as high as single family. That's a really interesting data point and really important factor in the market for sure. And I think that the great thing is at at the beginning of the year, you had the same table in, in the outlook, which captured the effect of increasing prices. And, and kind of the expectation that rates might increase. And now we expected that to happen over a period of time, but it happened very quickly. And I know that on the single family side, as you said, that can quickly kind of affect demand and I think probably create a little bit more pressure on that side of the market and potentially put people in a position to rent for a little bit longer. And that is a, a change and that flows into the overall kind of supply demand dynamic that, that we've been seeing kind of in multifamily for, for a long time. And I think that that's one that's probably changing a little bit less. Is that right? Correct. Coming out of the pandemic, we saw a huge run up in demand for multifamily. And it's a little bit of people who put off moving during the pandemic. But if you look at the numbers, it's more than made up for anything that you know, maybe some shadow demand that didn't happen during the pandemic quarters. Uh, So demand has been setting record levels and it just comes from people's preferences and moving. Maybe they're less likely to want to double up. So they're going out and forming their own households. 
So we're seeing demand really strong, and that's what's driving a lot of the rent growth um, and the very tight occupancy levels uh, that we've seen so far this year. And putting the market in really good position, given the possibility of an economic downturn later this year or even into early next year. The supply side of the equation has been a little bit uh, more lagged. The completions are taking longer to get into the market. So we're starting to see that while construction is up, completions are just taking longer and longer to get there, which is putting a constraint on the supply. We've already talked about how the single family market is undersupplied as well. So the overall total housing market remains undersupplied. Uh, and that's what's also driving to the higher prices on both rental and single family. And then with the new construction coming in on the multifamily side, we're starting to see near record levels of permits and starts hitting the market, which we would expect to kind of come through in the next couple of years. Our recent podcast with uh, with Up for Growth, right, and which it, they came out with a forecast of kind of the underproduction of housing, and they had 3.8 million units that were underproduced by the overall housing market. And in a really fortuitous way, that and as a researcher, you like to see similar numbers. Uh, Freddie Mac and the over in the Chief Economist office had an estimate that was about that same size. So we should want to see a fair amount of supply uh, coming into the market. That is for sure. But that is the overall single family and multifamily market. And I think that to what Sarah said before, with vacancy rates as, as tight as they are, certainly very low, but we don't think that it's an oversupply of multifamily at this time. But there is a balance as to what type of homes are being desired and where those are desired. And so I think for each individual market and sub-market and even at the property level, you have to kind of evaluate as those come on if they're concentrated in specific areas. But at this point, certainly at a national level, we think with a, with a number like that of the 3.8 million under production, that the, the numbers that are coming on right now and the multifamily side are, uh, are not going to overwhelm the market as a whole. And just to follow up on that, this isn't the first time we've had these conversations of too much supply hitting the market. And it's really come down to a local story. It's where is the supply coming on? Is there enough demand there? And even then gets down to sub-market areas. Um, so that's going to be the story with this round of supply coming on. And it is higher than what we saw, say, back in 2015, 2019. But it really does come to the local level. And as Steve mentioned, the overall with the tight vacancy rates, there is room for absorption for them for all this new supply coming on. So, no, those, those are great points. So looking at the markets, then let's look at some variation across the country. You know, what are you seeing? And you usually look at markets where you've got maybe more challenges, markets where you're seeing less challenges affordability wise and otherwise. So what are you seeing this year? So uh, there's a lot that we can say about the different markets. Maybe I'll start with just on the supply story. We did try to take a crack at looking at more details of where the supply was coming on. And there's a few different ways we try to, uh, to understand it best. You can do by just the sheer number of where, say, starts are coming on by metro area. But this is going to be highly correlated just with areas that have a high inventory of multifamily units already. So New York City sits at the top of the list the past 12 months when we average all the new starts versus, say, like a pre-pandemic average the five years leading up. It had very little change between the two time periods, but it's just such a large market for multifamily, it's going to stay at the top there. 
We did notice a few other markets that moved up the list. Um, Philadelphia was one, but that's due to a recent tax abatement policy change that grew that drove a lot of growth on the construction side. Uh, but Nashville and Phoenix are two metros that were kind of near the top, but definitely moved their way up. And I think we can talk a lot about the trends we saw during the pandemic of people moving and migration trends, moving out of the big gateway cities to some of these smaller Sunbelt secondary markets. And that's what's, I think, driving a lot of growth uh, when you look at how Phoenix and Nashville have been moving up the list in construction. But then there's other ways of kind of just thinking of, you know, total net change um, in places like Austin take the cake for that with, with almost double the amount of units started compared to pre-pandemic average. But Austin has continued to turn out positive fundamentals with positive rent growth and despite uh, occupancy levels uh, wavering at times, it still, remember, or still remains to be a very well-positioned market. And then you can even look at some areas that had the, the strongest growth in uh, starts compared to the pre-pandemic. So these are more just kind of starts then versus now the growth rate. And you start seeing some of those even smaller markets move the list. So Albuquerque, Colorado Springs, typically not markets you see just a lot of total inventory in multifamily, but the growth there has seen over 200% increase in construction starts for multifamily units. Uh, so it's really just kind of talking about across the country how there is differencing. And while Albuquerque might not be a lot of units compared uh, you know, to Phoenix, to Austin, for what is in that metro, it's seeing tremendous growth. What about, uh, do you see any markets having a, maybe more of a slowdown? So yeah, on the flip side of that, some markets that we've seen kind of fall out of those top lists, um, Chicago and Atlanta kind of pop up as some of the larger metros that have actually seen a decline when you compare the number of starts pre-pandemic uh, to this past 12 months. And Washington, D.C., while it's not declined, has definitely seen um, its ranking decline. So it's just not as many starts compared to some other metros. So while it still has a lot of supply up there, other metros are beating it out in just the sheer number. Sarah, that's helpful to understand from a supply side, but just looking at the, the markets overall, so not just with new supply, you, know, you usually have a top 10 and a bottom 10 there. What are those lists looking like? So yeah, there's, uh, you know, we talked at the beginning, the changes between the beginning of the year and now, and the top 10 metros actually have not seen a big, change. Uh, we continue to see similar players up there, very heavily dominated by the Florida markets, expected to see some of the top gross income growth for this year, along with the Southwest, um, Phoenix, Tucson, Albuquerque. Uh, those have all made the top 10 and with still pretty substantial growth this year, anywhere from 10 to about 13% gross income growth. So while overall um, at the national level, we're expecting about 6.8% gross income growth, which depending on uh, inflation adjustment, either kind of has you beating it or right at it, these top 10 metros are expected to come in well above inflation growth for the year. They all seem to uh, have high temperatures in common. <laughs> yes, I guess that's the, uh, the trend um, for people migrating to, to warmer places, perhaps. But the, the real driver is there. Unfortunately, temperature is not something that's in our model. Um, we, we can maybe think about trying to put it in, but uh, it's really kind of driven by, well, one, inflation is driving up most metros. So it's not just a specific inflation to these areas. 
but the wage growth, the population growth, the income growth, those are all big drivers in our model. And with people migrating, they are bringing their higher wages from some, sometimes from other areas are definitely impacting rents there. At the same time, a lot of these markets that have seen all this high demand also have really tight occupancy levels. So typically we see stronger growth in areas that have tight occupancy levels compared to their historic norms. So they just have more pricing power. And so looking at your bottom 10, I am going to stick with that temperature theme because I see two on there that get pretty cold, Minneapolis and Buffalo. But what do you see going on in sort of the bottom 10 markets? And we do an input is the average snowfall there um, <laughs> inversely correlate now. So the the bottom ten markets are heavily Midwest um, and with two gateway markets of DC and San Jose on there. But one thing um, I'd like to point out that we can't necessarily just show in the in the podcast are those actual numbers for the bottom ten because they still range from about three to five percent income growth for the year. In any other year, those would be probably on the other side of the chart in the top 10. But just given the overall strength this year, those make up the bottom 10, but are still decent growth. But that being said, it's probably not enough to really offset uh, inflation costs for this year, given that inflation is expected to be around 6% or so for the year by year end. But the drivers there, um, we definitely see you know lower migration trends into there, so lower demand. They might have uh, their vacancy or occupancy isn't quite as tight as some of the top 10 markets, so less pricing power to bring those up. You know, just overall slower economies that are not seeing a lot of the growth from the Florida, the Southwest, even the Southeast markets that we usually see on the top 10. So, Sarah, this is really interesting to look at because, like as you said, like even the the markets that are you know in quotes the bottom 10, you're still seeing pretty solid growth in gross income. And even like you said, in, in many cases, the vacancy rates are still pretty low. And in some cases, they're lower in those markets than in some of the, uh, in quotes, top 10. Right? So it, it seems like th- there's a little bit of, in some ways, you have some indication, some strong indications, but then there's also like something else that maybe doesn't feel as positive and, and you, you're getting to see like sort of maybe two stories going on at once. How are you, uh, how are you interpreting that? Exactly. As you said, Corey, it's, it's really hard sometimes to interpret some of these results because we do hear so much of what's going on in the economy. Consumer sentiments at the very low, I think it's all time lowest um, that it's ever been recorded going back to the 1950s. Other metrics, consumer confidence isn't quite as low, but they're on the same trajectory where they're going down. So it's hard to kind of step back and see that, you know, one, our rent growth expectations for the year still seem very strong, high 6%, while vacancy rates remain flat. Uh, But then you have kind of all of these looming, uh, you know, storms on the horizon, clouds coming in. And it's definitely kind of given us pause to think that there could be slowing. Um, we definitely see the moderation starting. The market, the multifamily market has seen such strong growth so far this year that we do think if there's slowing, that uh, there will be room for absorption of that slowing in the sense that we don't think that it's going to be so hard hit to the market that we'll see rents fall. We'll think we still obviously see rents at a pretty decent clip. Um, but the, the telltale sign right now is still that employment is looking strong. Unemployment still at some record low levels. I think it's only 10 basis points above pre-pandemic. So we pretty much have gotten back to where we were. 
there's obviously some participation or labor participation ratios that, uh, that's not quite back to where it was, but the labor market remains tight. We're starting to hear a little bit of some job layoffs, um, and it's going to be, we're going to have to wait, you know, just to see if those continue. What we've seen so far is they're kind of products of, say, overhiring from the pandemic. So tech companies um, or even like mortgage companies, as those things start to slow, there's some layoffs. Overall, the numbers of layoffs are still low. Uh, the jobless claims um, are still low. So those numbers aren't pointing to a slowdown yet, but that's where we are concerned. Once or if those numbers do start turning, then that's going to kind of set in motion uh, a potential for more stress for multifamily. We could see when people, you know, when people start losing jobs and that's when it's going to impact their household formation decisions. That's where we could start seeing people double up instead of forming their own households. Um, and that's where we can see then the impact more greatly on the multifamily side. Clearly from our forecast and our projections, we're not seeing that yet. Um, and we still think that there's strength in the multifamily market for the rest of this year, given what we've already talked about from the extremely expensive single family market, the lack of overall supply um, and the housing shortage that will continue to boost up the multifamily market for this year. It's interesting, Sarah, like, as you say, the um, overall, the, the fundamentals are hanging in there pretty well. And even some of the, you know, the markets that are expected to have the least amount of rent growth would have been fairly favorable in previous years. But that still may be um, less than the pace of inflation, which is ties back to what we talked about kind of in the intro, which uh, which also included, you know, rising interest rates. Are there are there other ways uh, that you see the rising interest rates flowing through? Yeah, so I think one thing that we haven't been able to really touch on yet is the impact this is having to cap rates and valuations and then our overall expectations for originations this year, because that has been one of the areas that has been impacted by these volatile rates the most so far. And yeah, so with the higher treasury rates come the higher 10-year treasury rates, which is a big influencer into our originations model and we, we're having a hard time keeping up with the volatility um, that we've seen over the past few weeks with it up so much and then back down. But we do anticipate that the higher treasury rates will put upward pressure on cap rates, um, and that could ultimately slow down property price appreciation, which will impact our origination forecast. Already um, at, the, at the end of the second quarter, the 10-year treasury rate has compressed cap rate spreads, the difference between the cap rate and the treasury rate, down to about 170 basis points. Um, that's 100 basis points lower than it was the prior quarter. We haven't seen that tight of cap rate spreads going back to the great financial crisis. Different things at play there. So, uh, you know, whenever we mention the great financial crisis and comparing numbers, then we give some alarm, but it's more the fact that with the high interest rates, but at the same time, very strong fundamentals, nobody's really giving up yet on the pricing power. Without there being any stress for properties to make their debt payments, um, they're still getting their rental revenue. We don't see that there's really any stress for people to have to sell at any kind of discount. So, so far, cap rates are staying low and valuations are holding up. But the bottom line is it's giving a pause to the market. And we're seeing that play through from people just uh, who don't need to, to make transactions right away, kind of slowing down and sitting on the sidelines. Yeah, and I think that that's a great point. And I know that as we've talked about it, as you say, the data that we have 
and that we typically look at goes back to the early 2000s and uh, and covers that period of the great financial crisis. And that is the one period of, of kind of lower spreads. And there aren't very many periods of, of increasing rates during that whole time period. But really going back a, a fair amount further is where we have to look for increasing rates. And I think that there's been periods, I think, in the in the mid-1990s and in the late 70s, where rates went up, and one of them was with uh, a meaningful increase in treasuries. Another one was, and I think the Fed increasing rates at the same time, which is you know certainly consistent with right now. Another one was with increasing rates and inflation in tow. So I think that one was back in the late 70s. And uh, in both those cases, the cap rate spreads got lower than the long run average, but they didn't move up extremely quickly. They certainly didn't move up in line with the treasury rate increases. Correct. Yeah, the, the first time period you're mentioning is 1994, which is one that we call out by you know looking at a similar time where over a quarter change, Treasury rates went up 100 basis points. And in 1994, we saw that cap rates, and this is reported by the ACLI, so a slightly different data source than we've typically used um, uh, from our, our real capital analytics. But the ACLI data actually shows that cap rates really only increased about 20, 30 basis points at the initial onset of that treasury rate bump up. It's a little bit of a different time because treasury rates had also been increasing in uh, the mid-1990s and they continued throughout 1994. But overall, there was just kind of about a 20, 30 basis point increase at that time before treasury rates then started to decline again. So, correct, yeah, if you kind of look back to trying to find a similar time and yeah, we had to go outside our normal data set because we did not have anything that was comparable um, going back to 2000. But going back to the mid-1990s, we do see a similar time period when this happened with, like you said, minimal actual impacts to cap rates. They stay pretty sticky without, uh, definitely definitely not as volatile as treasury rate movements. Um, so they definitely hang in there for a little bit longer. Right, which will then uh, play into the uh, property price appreciation, right? And so, uh, which then flows through into, as you said earlier, our uh, mortgage origination forecast, and uh, and that gets that gets tricky in a time like this as well. And certainly, all the uncertainty in the market can play into it. But uh, can, can maybe tell us a little bit about the updates uh, since the last time we've talked about this. Yeah, so trying to put on property price appreciation, we did have to kind of look at periods going back within like the past couple of past two decades for the data set that we have on price appreciation. But we did see in 2013 and 2016, two time periods where interest rates moved up pretty sharply in um, you know one quarter or two quarters, not as sharp as we have just seen. But we saw that at that same time with gross income growth staying steady actually it's slightly lower than the levels that we have predicted for this year, but still pretty steady at about 3 to 4%. Property price appreciation moderated from maybe what it saw prior years, but still stayed above 8% annual growth during that time. So that's just kind of another way to point back to that uh, property prices are expected to moderate, but we're not expecting to see anything like we saw during the great financial crisis of properties uh, of property depreciation. But that being said, with moderation in property prices, we do expect to see lower origination volumes this year compared to last year. Um, we're down about three and a half percent to maybe about 440 to 450 billion. Um, and this is coming off about 460 to 470 last year. Um, so a slight decline, and it's mostly just driven by slower property price appreciation 
along with higher treasury rates. We've talked a lot about uh, you know today about volatility and, and things. You know, some of that volatility is week by week, or or maybe it gets to to monthly in some cases. But but how do you you know when we think of the the multifamily market, which does not move you know maybe move as quickly as the stock market, right? How does that volatility play in? How do you interpret that? So it's definitely harder to pick up some of those real quick volatility movements, um, especially when we look at things like originations over the whole year. Uh, we hear them play out in that business gets slow, people sideline, wait to see how the interest rates shake out. And I think it's really you know anyone's guess right now on where the 10-year treasury is going to end up at the end of the year. Forecasts from last month even had the rate lower than it currently is right now. So it's it's really difficult to be able to catch that volatility when we look at the you know broad annual forecast originations. But it's definitely something that impacts the market, um, impacts deal decisions, it impacts borrowers' decisions on when they come for refinance or for when they come for property transactions. Uh, and so that's where you can definitely see people sit out on the sidelines, and that then impacts overall originations for the year, uh, especially if it keeps them out of the market for a prolonged period of time. Yeah. And I think that uh, speaking of what might kind of s- slow down the, the overall market size, we mentioned recession just a little bit, and that certainly gets uh, discussed a whole lot more. What do you think, uh, if things were really to s- slow down in the broader economy and flow through into multifamily, what could that do, I think, to the overall market? So, yeah, as you mentioned, I think one of the things that we really want to keep an eye on is the the labor market. Right now, it's continuing to show positive news, and that will help propel the overall multifamily fundamentals. But if that does start to weaken, um, then we do think that that would play through to our origination forecast as then when people lose jobs, unable to make rental payments. And that's when you then start seeing overall property uh, income, unable to make any debt service requirements. So then with that, you would think lower GDP growth, given that if we do fall into a recession this year. Um, all being said, I think when we kind of played around with those inputs and kind of thought where we thought the economy could go, given all of that added risk, we do think that we could then see volume originations down somewhere around the range of $400 billion, so about a 13% decline from last year, which is not nearly as severe of a drop we saw during the great financial crisis. Um, so we do think that the overall strength of the market will continue to kind of hold in there, even with a weaker economic outlook into our origination forecast. So Sarah, that that's maybe the worst case scenario, but that but not the most likely scenario, it seems like from our conversation today. So just if if we were to sum it up real quick, um, you know, what what's sort of the, the top line from from the outlook and how you see things going? Overall, what we see is the multifamily market continues to perform well. And given the increased uncertainty, we still think it's going to perform very well throughout this year. Uh, Continue to see healthy returns, tight occupancy, strong demand for multifamily rental. However, we can't be ignorant to everything that we're hearing and seeing in the broader economy. Um, And we do see the paths that those could come down and impact multifamily. But given the trajectory that we're on right now, we do feel that the multifamily market will end the year on a very good note. Sarah and Steve as well, being once again co-host and part-time guest, I really appreciate this. Uh, It's such a complicated market this year, and you've done a fantastic job of 
helping us understand it better. Uh, I feel like I'm one step closer to an economics degree I'm probably never going to get. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Corey. Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, audio producer, Dalton Ocolo, and editor, Raquel Sands. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research. And now here's a question that didn't make the cut. Sarah, there's one question that I should have asked at the beginning. Why is Bugs Bunny always getting lost in Albuquerque? Uh, So actually, the story I've heard is that the old Route 66 that went from L.A. to Chicago would go through Albuquerque. And at one time, either road construction or just how the road was set up and it might come back and uh, intersect with itself, uh, got some people turned around or they missed their turn. Uh, But to put a fun spin on it, let's relate that to the current migration patterns that we're seeing of people moving away from the larger gateway cities towards the smaller, less expensive areas. So maybe as people are heading out on Route 66, uh, they're reaching Albuquerque and deciding to stick around instead of trying to make their turn out of town.